the question I was asked to talk on was, are we saved by faith or by works? Uh, now, that is a classical Reformation question, question placed by the Reformation. But I think one of the first things a Catholic theologian has to say is that that's a question badly put. Uh, once you have the question framed that way, you're going to have a hard time, I think, getting at the real issues. Now, part of the problem at the time of the Reformation was precisely that I think the different sides tended to think they were discussing different questions. I mean, it's very hard to get a nice, neat lineup. One side says X, the other says not X, and they mean the same things by X. I mean, you have a problem in sort of how people understood words. I do think the phrase, or we say by faith or works, faith versus works, is a classically Protestant way of setting the question. And once one sets the question that way, faith or works, Catholic theology has already sort of lost the game. One thing I want to do is sort of tonight is sort of blur that distinction. I want, I want to sort of run faith and works together uh, to a certain degree. If forced, if a Catholic theologian has to say, are we saved by faith or works, I think the Catholic theologian clearly has to say we're saved by faith. If that's the question, what I want to do is undermine the question. How do we put the question that we should be talking about? It has to do, I think, with grace. It's agreed by everyone in the Western tradition that we are saved primarily by grace. The question is, what do you mean by grace, and how does grace function in the life of the Christian? Those are the decisive questions. One way of getting at the Reformation divide is, are we saved purely by receiving grace? without our agency playing any role beyond that of reception? Is salvation strictly something received to which no nothing we do contributes? Or do actions within the Christian life play some role within grace that play some important role in our redemption? How does grace interact with human agency, human doing things? Is it simply grace is purely received? Or does grace engage our action in some way? Now, this is going to have to be uh, a somewhat technical at some points presentation. I realize you all don't have the advantage of a Dartmouth or Yale education. Um, you're here at Harvard. Uh, but I, you know, I'm sure you can really make an effort and, uh, and follow me. At some points, this will be technical. And at some points, I have to say, we're going to hit, I think, the limits of human comprehension. There is a point in doing theology where you have to say, I have to say this, and I have to say that, and I can't tell you how I can say both. Now, we can talk a bit more of that, but I'm going to hit the point which I will do what I don't like doing, which is I'll say mystery at some point. Um, there's a famous passage in Reed Lardner, great early 20th century American sort of comic writer, where there's a little kid pestering the grandfather, and the grandfather says, shut up, he explained. Um, I think in theology, sometimes you hit the shut up, he explained moment, where there's very little more you can say than how this makes sense. Okay, let me say two preliminary things. As uh, Juan Carlos noted, uh, I was a Lutheran most of my adult life. I was received in the Catholic Church in 2010. It was, in fact, thinking about some of these issues that was fairly crucial in my becoming a Catholic in 2010. Let me say second, uh, at least at the present moment, particularly if we're talking narrowly about justification, this is no longer a church-dividing issue between most Protestants and most Catholics. In 1999, 
There was a statement signed by the Vatican at the decision of the Holy Father, John Paul II, and the churches of the Lutheran World Federation, in which each side said there was a basic consensus on these topics, and what the other church condemned in the 16th century, that isn't what one now sees the other church teaches. So on this issue, this is no longer consi narrowly considered. This is no longer considered a church dividing or communion hindering issue. Just put joint declaration on the doctrine of justification into Google and the text will pop up. Now I should say, as I mentioned, I was on the drafting team, full disclosure, uh, on the drafting team that produced the text. I was along with someone else who was responsible for the English translation. Uh, but I would note, so if you say it really sounds stupid, I mean, I was one of the drafters, I'll try not to be defensive. Um, but also, second, it was a very narrow statement. When I, kept say, when I keep saying the issue is strictly considered, what I am going to argue a bit is that larger issues of the nature of grace do point at some very significant Protestant-Catholic differences. Uh, differences end up being so significant to me that I thought I could no longer remain Protestant and had to become a Catholic. Uh, that's true, just two sort of caveats um, at the beginning. Let me start here. First part of the statement, I want to sort of clarify some terms, get at the way they're understood differently on the two sides. And then I want to talk about particularly a Catholic understanding about how grace engages human actions, human agency, in a way particularly that makes Catholic stress works in a certain sense. First, let me say something about faith. When one looks at a pre-modern theologian, theologian before, say, 1700, an important question to ask sometimes is with any particular term, what biblical text comes to their mind? For any pre-modern theologian, they have far more of the Bible in their head memorized than we do. Books were harder to come by, uh, regular chanting of, of, of the Psalms in, in choir. So, in that, so there will often be certain texts, certain Bible verses, that tend to be the paradigmatic context of interpretation for a word. For Luther, the standard text, I would say, which is the paradigm for interpreting faith, is Romans 1.17. For in it, the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed through faith before faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. That phrase, the just shall live by faith, is a decisive term for Luther. Faith for Luther is a total orientation of the self, the commitment, the trust of the self in God. It is both intellectual and volitional. Classically, it was defined as knowledge, assent, and trust. Those group both, both volitional and intellectual. For Luther, it is trust, faith, that receives what God gives, namely himself. For Luther, the gospel is a promise. How do you receive a promise? You trust in it. If somebody says, my wife tells me I'm picking you up at 5, and then I call an Uber at 3.05 just to be sure, <laughs> then I haven't trusted it. Trust is the way you receive a promise. That's crucial to Luther's theology. That's why trust is so important. And that attitude of trust is what joins the faithful person with Christ. He consistently uses nuptial imagery for faith. He says, for example, 
Uh, faith unites the soul with Christ as a bride is united with the bridegroom. Accordingly, the believing soul can boast of and glory in whatever Christ has as though it were its own. And whatever the soul has, Christ claims as its own. Faith brings about the happy exchange. Christ takes my sin. I take his righteousness just as a husband and wife share everything. Faith is thus the nuptial center. That quotation is from Luther's Freedom of a Christian. If you want to see Luther at his most attractive, that's it, is the short text. He can be pretty ugly at times, I'll say. But that text is particularly attractive. Now, this understanding of faith as a total commitment of the self is not foreign to the Catholic tradition. And, for example, the Vatican II text on the Word of God, on, on Revelation, Dei Verbum, of the Word of God, it says, defines faith as an obedience by which man commits his whole self freely to God, offering the full submission of intellect and will to the God who reveals. So you can find a similar kind of talk in Catholic theology, although, as I note, it's not typical. Let me note one further thing about Luther's use of the word faith. Crucial for Luther is that the self is entirely receptive of salvation. The self contributes nothing. It's entirely something that is purely received. So when he talks about faith as receptive, he'll make reception as little of an action as he can. He'll say faith exists mere passive, strictly passively. Because if there's some action you do, it's an action you can fail to do, which opens doubt, which opens the possibility you think you haven't done your part, and then you will either think you've done it, pride, or you'll think you haven't done it and you get despair. Luther thinks you bring in a human action and you've opened the door to either pride or despair, not the joy of the gospel. The joy of the gospel, he thinks, depends upon your thinking of the self as strictly passive so that you can simply trust that God will do it because you don't have to do anything. So it's again Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith. That tends to be the way Luther thinks of these issues. Now Catholic theology has tended to think about the word faith in the context of two biblical passages. The first is 1 Corinthians 13 where Paul famously talks about faith, hope, and love. What do you think that gets wed, read at, I think, sappy weddings? Uh, at home, south, where I grew up. Uh, and you read 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, blah, blah, blah. And ends, there, these three things abide, faith, hope, love, and the greatest of these is love. This becomes a sort of model of the Christian life for scholastic theology. How do you think about the nature of the Christian life? It is faith, hope, and love. These are the primary theological virtues. These are gifts of grace. Grace gives you these things. Faith, hope, and love is realities in the self. And they are what joins you to God. Important to see the theological virtues are always relational. Say someone like Aquinas. There are realities in the self. But they are also something that connects you to God. Quite important. And then what you'll get then in a text like the beginning of the second part of the second part of Aquinas' Summa Theologiae is a long discussion of faith, hope, and love in great detail. What their opposites are, faith as opposed to doubt or, or, uh, or certainty of a wrong sort. So you get all these discussions. 
of these three, how they're different, how love is the greatest, blah, blah, blah. How then, within this triad, faith, hope, and love, from 1 Corinthians 13, how do you understand the role of faith? Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Now, actually, in Latin, which they were all doing, the substance of things hoped for. Or, and it is the conviction of things not seen. The argumentum of things not seen. Sort of proof. Note then, faith for Hebrews 11.1 1 is primarily intellectual. It's about seeing things not seen, believing things not proven. So you would locate, if you want to think through how do faith, hope, and love interrelate, faith tends to be located in the intellect, whereas hope and love are primarily located in the will. Now, there's, a, there's an element of will in faith. Faith is not like 2 plus 2 is 4, which requires no volition on your part. There is an element of volition in, in faith. That's why faith can be meritorious in certain kinds of situations for certain things. Uh, but nevertheless, it is primarily intellectual. Uh, and that's important to be noted. You'll get Catholics who respond to Luther saying we're justified by faith. They, does that mean you're justified just by believing something, by this intellectual act? Well, well no. Luther is not thinking of faith in terms of Hebrews 11.1. 1. He's thinking of it as an entire way of life. This is something of a problem, is that when Catholics say we're not justified by faith by itself, it's in one sort of context of interpretation, Luther, when he says we are, tends to mean something else. That's why you can't do simple one-to-one -one comparisons of Catholic and, and Luther or broad, more broadly Protestant talk. They're locating and defining the term differently, and each of them can appeal to certain biblical contexts to make sense of what they're saying. And that's faith. That's what I'm mostly going to um, be talking about. But I also say, about, say something about works. Um, I would attend talk to more about the Christian life than about works. Works makes it seem like action X, Y, Z have value four, five, and six. Talk more about the Christian life. Let me say more about the third term in the topic I was given, salvation. There is a rather different way that Martin Luther thought about salvation than the way the Catholic tradition generally has. Now, for Luther, the question he would ask isn't so much, are we saved? by faith or works, but are we justified by faith or works? Justification becomes the central topic. Now, one thing that Luther did was make the topic of justification, which had not been a central topic of Catholic theology. He made it into, as it came to be put, the article by which the church stands and falls. Here is where everything is at stake. You can read all, say, in the Summa Theologiae, which is 1,500 pages, 1,600 pages, justification takes up about 10. Uh, it's a topic. He gives it a question, but one question, as opposed to, say, 20 on the nature of love. Um, it, it becomes a central topic for Luther. Justification here is crucially, how do you stand accepted before the just God? It's a judgment question. How do you, right now, come to be accepted, as, taken as acceptable, by the just God? That's Luther's question. Is it by faith, a pure gift? Or is it some work you have to do, and on the basis of that work, that deed, God comes to accept you? 
Luther thought if it's a matter of some deed, some work you've done, you can never be confident. He thought an absolute knockdown argument. This was in an argument with a guy named Jacob Latimus. He said, okay, Latimus, you think we're saved by works, huh? You, I bet you this, you choose a work, the best work you think you've done in your entire life. And if you're willing to think that work has nothing sinful in it, are you willing to bet your eternal soul? Given the choice, which will you do on the last day? Here, God, here's my work. Let my entire eternal life ride on that work, or are you going to plead the merits of Christ? Which are you going to do? Luther thought that was an absolute knockdown argument because everyone's going to plead the merits of Christ. No one's going to say, okay, I'll bet my entire life there was nothing self-interested, nothing selfish in that deed. For Luther, then, that's the question. How do you stand accepted by the righteous God? Now, for Catholic theology, things tend to go different when you think about salvation. Catholic theology is relentlessly teleological. It thinks in terms of ends. What is the end of something? Where is it going? What is its point? Now, to some degree, this comes out of Aristotelian philosophy. Things have a final cause, an efficient cause, what makes it to be in certain sense, material cause, formal cause, final cause. You always have, if you're gonna explain something, you have to ask, what's its point? For better or worse, Part of modern science rests upon not asking that question. In physics, you never ask, well, what's the point of this chemical reaction? What's it trying to do? For Aristotle, you have to ask that. Trees, for example, have an end. Treeness. Trees are, want to flourish as trees. Dogs, the goal of dogs is dogginess. They want to flourish in dogs. Human beings, should want, our goal is to flourish as human beings. That's the end. We're moving toward an end. Human beings have not only a natural end, flourishing as human beings, but in the grace of God, we're given a supernatural end. Fellowship with God. Um, the question then is, I'll come back to this, the question for Catholic theology is what is needed to achieve that end, our natural end of flourishing as human beings, and the supernatural end of fellowship with the Trinity? What gets us? To that end. How is God going to move us by grace from where we are now to where we will be? That is, in perfect fellowship with God, with our human nature completed. That's a slightly different question. A part of that question, how is God going to bring us to the end he desires for us, is a question about acceptance. What's the role of our sinfulness? How do we come to be accepted by a righteous God? But the question is, in some sense, much larger. How are we brought to that and God wills for us? And I'm going to spend the rest of this presentation, now that I've got sort of the topics cleared up, I'm going to spend the rest of this presentation talking from a Catholic perspective on that question. How does God bring us to the end he wishes for us, the natural end of human flourishing, the supernatural end of life with the Holy Trinity, and what's the role of faith and works? and bringing us to that end. Okay, some preliminary things. The end, eternal life with God, the supernatural end, is something we cannot achieve in our own. It's beyond human capacities. You can see X, Y, and Z perfectly well, but there is no innate human capacity to see the being of God, to see God face to face. 
We have, must be elevated, that's a standard term, we must be elevated in a certain sense that our intellect will be able to see God. Now we have an intellect, old medieval phrase, kingdom of God is not made for geese. A goose couldn't have an intellectual perception of the being of God and remain a goose. It's not in goosehood to have deep intellectual perceptions. Human nature is capable of it, but not naturally. We have an intellect, that intellect can be elevated beyond itself in a certain sense to being able to see God. Now we can be moved to that only by God's grace because it's not an innate capacity of human nature. I can teach you to understand theology perhaps, I can't teach you to see the being of God. That's beyond normal capacities. It's a pure, that is a pure gift. Or to put it the way the medievals put it, it's never merited. You can never merit seeing God. That's a gift. In no way is that something you can be deserving of in any straightforward, or for that matter, any analogical sense. Now note, merit is a useful term. If you do well on a test, you merit a good grade. You're disappointed if you don't get it. But God does not owe us seeing the divine being. It's a standard term in medieval theology that God, God creates nothing uh, that's inane, that's pointless. If God creates us with a nature, he sort of owes us the situation where our nature can flourish. I mean, God wouldn't make us with vision and give us nothing to see. I mean, that seems like cheating. God naturally gives the, situ the, the context in which a nature can flourish. God owes us that in some analogous sense. God doesn't owe us, however, seeing the being of God. That's not intrinsic to what it is to be human. Now note, um, I can talk about that, the need for grace. We need grace to be able to see God. God must elevate us, elevate us without ever mentioning sin or forgiveness. In Catholic theology, the concept of grace is not predicated upon sinfulness. We need grace to be elevated to a life beyond human nature. Now, we also need grace in order to overcome sin, to be forgiven, to be cleansed. But that's one set of issues. Another set of issues is, what do we need for that destiny God wills for us? And there we'll need grace even if we hadn't sinned. I'm a defender of obscure, useless questions sometimes, and I think one of the more obscure, useless questions is actually quite useful to argue about, is would there have been an incarnation if there had been no sin? Uh, because it becomes an argument about how do you understand the way what God does in Christ is a reaction to human sin, and in what way is it more than a reaction to human sin? This was a very interesting medieval and early modern discussion on just that question. And often it gets at how a person sees the overall structure of the Christian faith. And there is this notion that there's an aspect of what God does that's independent of the issue of sin. So one talks about grace both elevating, this is a gratia elevans, and a grace healing, a gratia sanans. This is, I think, an important kind of point. Now, to be in a state of grace is to be precisely in that state of God moving you toward that final participation in the end that he stayed, that he wishes for you. Entrance into that state of grace, entrance into the motion of God moving you toward the end, is what Catholic theology means by justification. You are justified when you are taken into that divine movement of grace, moving you toward 
life with God. Now that cannot be merited, ever. Aquinas and the Council of Trent are very clear. But the question is, you, how do you enter a state of grace It has nothing to do with merit? It is pure, unadulterated gift. Again, Thomas is, all, is very clear on this. It can only be received. But I would note, it must be received to be effective. And here you don't get in the Catholic tradition what you get with Luther trying to make reception not really an act. Council of Trent is very clear. You must do something to receive grace. At the very least, there's something you must not do, which is you must not reject it. So the Trent, Trent will say, Council of Trent uh, will say, there must be a cooperation with grace, which means at least you don't reject it. So there is there, even here, a notion of cooperation, of human action, although here it's a receptive action, or even a kind of negative action, not rejecting it. Okay, so far, so good. But I would note that for Catholic theology, it's really all three together, faith, hope, and love, that receive this grace. Um, so a Catholic theologian will say, uh, you'll find scads of them saying, because it's a biblical phrase, we're justified by faith. But that's shorthand for we're justified by faith, hope, and love together, this entire attitude of the self. So the standard Catholic line is we're justified by faith formed by love. Fetus caritate formata. It's only when faith is a part of that living movement of the self toward God in love, hope, and faith that in fact we're joined with grace and taken into this movement toward the end that will achieve eschatologically with fellowship in the Trinity. Okay, so far so good. But now we get to the, the sort of hard work part where now we're something beyond faith where works is going to come in. It's a basic rule of Aquinas and Catholic theology in general that faith, that grace, perfects nature. It does not destroy it. What we're created as in human beings isn't wiped out by redemption. It is perfected by redemption. Now, there may be more than just the perfection of grace. There's something more, this elevation. But there is always the perfection of nature, not its elimination. We're not, we don't become less than human. Uh, in, in salvation. Now, a part of human nature is we are free and responsible. And for Catholic theology, those have gone together. To be free is to be responsible. You get to choose to do X or Y, but that means now you have done X or Y. You have done it. There are your consequences. You must live that out. Within certain limits, we can shape who we are and must, at the very least, live ourselves with those consequences. So for Catholic theology, to be a free and responsible being means there should be a kind of moral fittingness between our lives and the end we attain. They should mesh in a certain sense. There should be a notion of deserving between a life and an end. That's what I call a kind of moral fittingness between the life and the end that it comes to. In a rightly ordered world, for a, free, for a free and responsible creature, there should be this kind of moral fittingness between the life lived and the end achieved. That's why we're upset when it isn't so, that we live in a world where the just suffer and the evil flourish. I think there's a kind of natural, this isn't right. Something's wrong here. We think there ought to be a connection between the life lived and the end achieved, that end that one ends up in, in a certain sense. 
Now note, this isn't a burden of human existence. That we sort of make our beds and then lie in them isn't sort of God forcing something upon us. It's part of human dignity uh, that we are called to do this. Uh, we don't. If I screw up, which at home I, I screw up a lot, my wife once said I was the stupidest smart person she knew. Um, I do a lot, you know, I can't remember my keys. I know she has a second wife, a second husband list, what she wants in her second husband. Um, at the top of it is possessing, possessing short term memory, um, which I don't. Um, uh, I get, she doesn't blame the refrigerator when it doesn't work the way she blames me. That's because, I mean, I'm supposed to be a free and responsible creature. My wife doubts that some days. Um, the refrigerator isn't. We take toward free and responsible creatures, we, take, we give different kinds of praise and blame than we give toward refrigerators, where we don't really, you know, we say it's a great refrigerator, but it's not like saying this is a great person. We make a different kind of judgment. It's interesting, I mean, how we treat dogs and cats. Uh, but nevertheless, without going to the, we'll stick with the clear cases, refrigerators and human beings, it's part of the glory of being human. We are free and responsible. Now I said, for Aquinas, grace perfects nature. Now what does that mean about our existence as free and responsible creatures? God moves each thing toward its end in a way fitting to its nature. When it comes to these questions, that's the sort of rule Aquinas rolls out. God moves each thing toward its end in a way fitting to its nature. Now, how do you move things in accord with their nature? Now, if I pick up a rock and move it, I have not violated the integrity of the rock. If a rock rolls down the hill or I pick it up and move it down the hill, it's the same. But if now I'm not supposed to go into the next room, and I get there, say, two different ways. In one way, I decide, to heck with that. I'm just going to walk over into the other room where I'm not supposed to go. Then I'm praiseworthy or blameworthy. But if, say, you get the entire defensive line to come in here for the football team, to come in and pick me up and force me over there, then I'm not blameworthy. Uh, it's not a free act if I'm, if I'm physically coerced. It makes a difference to the activity of my act. The integrity of my act is undermined if I'm coerced, but not a rock. Rocks aren't free. We don't, we don't treat them the same kind of way. Thus, certain actions we think are fully human actions and most praiseworthy and blameworthy a part of my nature. Um, if I want a person X to do action Y, and I talk to this person, convince them it's the right thing to do, and they do it, then I haven't violated their integrity. Uh, if I hold a gun to their head, then I violated their integrity in a certain basic way. Now, how does God respect our integrity as free and responsible beings while moving us to this supernatural end? Here's where Aquinas thinks there thus must be a relation of fittingness between the life we live and the end that is finally achieved, which he thinks is a relation of merit or reward. And here he appeals to the large amount of reward language in the New Testament. I stretch forward for the, the wreath of, of victory that I know awaits me, Paul says. There are within the Christian life relations of merit, Luther thinks. If, I mean, Aquinas thinks. If you receive grace and cooperate with grace, a reward of that is further grace. So both Aquinas and Trent will say, and even more, come the last day. Come the final judgment. 
Aquinas and Catholic theology say there will be a moral fittingness between who we are in grace, united with Christ, and what happens to us, being received into eternal life. So that it is Catholic dogma that for those who are redeemed, they will merit eternal life. God will move you in this path, in this movement toward the final end, so that at the end, by the grace of God, you will be fit for that end. You will merit that end. Crucialness seems to me, for Catholic theology here, is that you are in the movement where God is moving you to an end is absolutely pure gift. There's nothing you do individually. But once you're in that movement, there are relations between one moment and the next. If I, re if I receive grace in some sense and do nothing with it, it dies. If I cooperate with grace, it moves me along. And at the end, there will be a relation of fittingness, moral fittingness, between who I am and that declaration of acceptance. But note, that I'm there is a gift. The famous phrase of Aquinas, I mean, excuse me, of Augustine, when God rewards our merit, he crowns our, his gifts, which is what Aquinas and the Catholic tradition are trying to make sensible. Now, let me make a couple of caveats here. Three, and I'll bring this to a close. A couple of caveats, a couple of limits. First, this is all by a kind of divine ordination. God has set it up from one act to the other. There's a kind of, you do this, I will do that. It's not that we can make a legal demand of God. Uh, it's strictly a matter of a kind of divine order. God never owes us anything. Rather, Aquinas says, God owes it to himself to do this for us, because he said, if you do X, I will do Y. You cooperate, this will happen. He owes it to himself. Now the hard part. One God, I think we don't want to say, well, God puts us into this movement, and then we have to do our part. God pushes the bike, and we have to do our own pedal. No. For Aquinas in the Catholic tradition, that still makes works important in a way that isn't the case. For Aquinas in the Catholic tradition, grace is inseparable from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Not only the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, there is a reality within us, a change within us, but it's never separate from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who acts. The Spirit acts within us, and the Spirit can act even within our freedom. For Catholic tradition, the phrase, God is closer to us than we are to ourselves, isn't just pious talk, it's metaphysical truth. I'm always external to you, but God isn't. God is within my action. God is even within my freedom. Thus, it's a relatively standard assertion of the Augustinian tradition. God can move my freedom without violating its integrity. Because I can move my freedom without violating my integrity, and God sort of dwells within me in a radically different way than any other creature can dwell within me. God alone can move a person infallibly without violating their freedom. For Aquinas, God's omnipotence is so omnipotent that God can not only bring it about that I will infallibly do X, God can bring about that I will infallibly do X freely. It will be truly my free action. But in the end, all I can say is, God moved me that way. I will thank God that I have in fact done that. Now, that's a very odd notion. 
Austin Fair, Thomas theologian in the middle of the 20th century, referred to it as double agency. It's only possible between God and a creature because God is always, so to speak, metaphysically present within the self. However, the New Testament does tend to talk this way. Take, for example, in Philippians. You have a very odd sentence. Paul says to the Philippians, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and act according to his purpose. Now note the oddity of the two halves of the sentence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, Juan Carlos, get to it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because God is at work in you to act and to will. Well, which is it? Juan Carlos working out his salvation with fear and trembling, or God at work with him to act and to will, act and to, to will according to God's intent. For Paul, it's both. It's both a genuine human action and a gift of grace. So that Paul can say, it is not I, but Christ living in me, but go on to talk about him doing things. He has a life, but it's now the life of Christ in him. For Catholic theology, this is the center of how you talk about works in the Christian life. God will bring us to the end in such a way that we're really fit to be there. It will be, there's a famous story C.S. Lewis says you, um, about a sort of wedding banquet. You come in, you've been, you're all dirty, uh, there's a wedding banquet, uh, and, and the host says, you sit down and join us. We don't care that you're dirty, we accept you as you are. The reason said, well, I'd really rather go take a shower and clean up a bit before I join you. I feel better about it. Well, that's just what God is doing. He's, he's allowing us as free, responsible beings to be fit for the end. But in the end, all we can do is thank God for that. It's not something in which we can boast. That's a crucial, crucial point. I do think here we, we reach the limits of theological comprehension. I don't think I can say much more about how fr human freedom and divine sovereignty interrelate, other than to say that God can, in fact, if he wills to do so, bring it about that I will do X and do X freely. I will have done it freely, but I must thank God that I did it freely because finally it's in his hands. I cannot think that through using the categories of agency and causality developed in the metaphysics just done in terms of creatures. Now I can say more about that, why I think we have to reach that conclusion, but at any rate, that's where I think we are. Let me note, um, well, let, me, let me leave it at that point. Let me make a summary and then we can have some discussion. I think the movement of the self into its communion with God is not merited. Entrance into that movement, first grace or justification is not merited. Note, if I fall out of grace, I, I don't merit getting back. And there's no way I merit staying there, perseverance. Perseverance, return, justification are all to be understood as not in any sense merited. But within that movement, there are relations of merit, one moment to the next. And there's a relation of merit between the life lived and the final end of eternal life. In the U.S. Lutheran Catholic Dialogue in the 1980s, the Catholics used a phrase that has always struck with me, stuck with me, that in the end there is, and then this is their phrase, the crowning gift of a merited destiny. The crowning gift of a merited destiny. And that's the sort of the tension of those two halves, gift and merited, is what sort of makes sense, or Catholic theology tries to make sense of. That one can both talk of the Christ as merit, one talks about gift, although I would note, gift is, gift is more foundational than merit. God's merits 
our merits are God's gifts. And that, I think, is what finally uh, Catholic theology wants to say. God's grace is so great that not only does he bring us to, our, to the end he wills for us, he brings us as free and responsible human beings. That I thank God not only for getting me there, but getting me there in a way that I'm then fit for that end, this immoral fittingness. And that, I think, is finally where I want to say Catholic theology celebrates grace in a way even more inclusive and expansive than someone like Martin Luther. Thank you very much.